if you've been listening to this podcast you would know that this week i'm narrating some wonderful essays to you and to conclude this theme today i've got an essay by will durant from his book called the lessons of history now this this is really a short book compared to what generally what uh, will durant had written but it's a uh, it's quite an interesting one because what he does in this book is he brings out different lessons from rest of his work and then adds the context of different ideas of history and helps you understand every idea in its historical context for example religion what is its context in historical terms take economics or politics or wars so all these ideas have been contextualized in the historical sense and the essay that i'm going to narrate today it's called morals and history which means here he talks about the morals the morality and uh, how that has been shaped throughout history So let me narrate this essay which is called Morals and History. Morals are the rules by which a society exhorts its members and associations to behavior consistent with its order, security and growth. So for 16 centuries the Jewish enclaves in Christendom maintained their continuity and internal peace by a strict and detailed moral code almost without help from the state and its laws a little knowledge of history stresses the variability of moral codes and concludes that they are negligible because they differ in time and place and sometimes contradict each other a larger knowledge stresses the universality of moral codes and concludes to their necessity moral codes differ because they adjust themselves to historical and environmental conditions if we divide economic history into three stages hunting agriculture industry we may expect that the moral code of one stage will be changed in the next In the hunting stage a man had to be ready to chase and fight and kill when he had caught his prey he ate to the cubic capacity of his stomach being uncertain when he might eat again insecurity is the mother of greed as cruelty is the memory if only in the blood of a time when the test of survival was the ability to kill presumably the death rate in men so often risking their lives in the hunt was higher than in women some men had to take several women and every man was expected to help women to frequent pregnancy pugnacity brutality greed and sexual readiness were advantages in the struggle for existence probably every vice was once a virtue that is a quality making for the survival of the individual the family or the group 
man's sins may be the relics of his rise rather than the stigma of his fall. History does not tell us just when men passed from hunting to agriculture. Perhaps in the Neolithic age and through the discovery that grain could be sown to add to the spontaneous growth of wild wheat. We may reasonably assume that the new regime demanded new virtues and changed some old virtues into vices. Industriousness became more vital than bravery, regularity and thrift more profitable than violence, peace more victorious than war. Children were economic assets. Birth control was made immoral. On the farm, the family was the unit of production under the discipline of the father and the seasons and paternal authority had a firm economic base. Each normal son matured soon in mind and self-support. At 15, he understood the physical tasks of life as well as he would understand them at 40. All that he needed was land, a plow and a willing arm. So he married early, almost as soon as nature wished. He did not fret long under the restraints placed upon premarital relations by the new order of permanent settlements and homes. As for young women, chastity was indispensable, for its loss might bring unprotected motherhood. Monogamy was demanded by the approximate numerical equality of the sexes. For 1500 years, this agricultural moral code of continence, early marriage, divorceless monogamy and multiple maternity maintained itself in Christian Europe and its white colonies. It was a stern code, which produced some of the strongest characters in history. Gradually, then rapidly and ever more widely, the Industrial Revolution changed the economic form and moral superstructure of European and American life. Men, women and children left home and family, authority and unity to work as individuals, individually paid in factories built to house not men but machines. Every decade the machines multiplied and became more complex. Economic maturity came later. Children no longer were economic assets. Marriage was delayed. Premarital continence became more difficult to maintain. The city offered every discouragement to marriage. But it provided every stimulus and facility for sex. Women were emancipated, that is, industrialized. And contraceptives enabled them to separate intercourse from pregnancy. The authority of father and mother lost its economic base through the growing individualism of industry. The rebellious youth was no longer constrained by the surveillance of the village. He could hide his sins, sins in the protective anonymity of the city crowd. The progress of science raised the authority of the test tube over that of the crossier. The mechanization of economic production suggested mechanistic materialistic philosophies. 
education spread religious doubts. Morality lost more and more of its supernatural supports. The old agricultural moral code began to die. In our time, as in the times of Socrates and Augustus, war has added to the forces making for moral laxity. After the violence and social disruption of the Peloponnesian War, Alcibiades felt free to flout the moral code of his ancestors and Thrasymachus could announce that might was the only right. After the wars of Marius and Sulla, Caesar and Pompey, Antony and Octavius, Rome was full of men who had lost their economic footing and their moral stability. Soldiers who had tasted adventure and had learned to kill, citizens who had seen their savings consumed in the taxes and inflation caused by war, women dizzy with freedom multiplying divorces, abortions and adulteries. A shallow sophistication prided itself upon its pessimism and cynicism. It is almost a picture of European and American cities after two world wars. History often offers some consolation by reminding us that sin has flourished in every age. Even our generation has not yet rivaled the popularity of homosexualism in ancient Greece or Rome or Renaissance Italy. The humanists wrote about it with a kind of scholarly affection and Ariosto judged that they were all addicted to it. Aretino asked the Duke of Mantua to send him an attractive boy. Prostitution has been perennial and universal. From the state-regulated brothels of Assyria to the nightclubs of Western Europe and American cities even today. In the University of Wittenberg in 1544, according to Luther, the race of girls is getting bold and run after the fellows into their rooms and chambers and wherever they can and offer them their free love. Montaigne tells us that in his time, obscene literature found a ready market. The immorality of our stage differs in kind rather than degree from what restoration England had, and John Cleland's memoir of a woman of pleasure, a veritable catena of coitus, was as popular in 1749 as in 1965. We have noted the discovery of dice in the excavations near the site of Nineveh. Men and women have gambled in every age. In every age, Men have been dishonest and governments have been corrupt, probably less now than generally before. The pamphlet literature of 16th century Europe groaned with denunciations of wholesale adulteration of food and other products. Man has never reconciled himself to the Ten Commandments. We have seen Voltaire's view of history as mainly a collection of the crimes, follies and misfortunes of mankind and Gibbon's echo of that summary.
we must remind ourselves again that history as usually written is quite different from history as usually lived. The historian records the exceptional because it is interesting, because it is exceptional. If all those individuals who had no Boswell had found their numerically proportionate place in the pages of historians, we should have a dueler but just a view of the past and of man. Behind the red facade of war and politics, misfortune and poverty, adultery and divorce, murder and suicide, were millions of orderly homes, devoted marriages, men and women kindly and affectionate, troubled and happy with children. Even in recorded history, we find so many instances of goodness, even of nobility, that we can forgive though not forget the sins. The gifts of charity have almost equaled the cruelties of battlefields and jails. How many times even in our sketchy narratives we have seen men helping one another. But who will dare to write a history of human goodness? So we cannot be sure that the moral laxity of our times is a herald of decay rather than a painful or delightful transition between a moral code that has lost its agricultural basis and another that our industrial civilization has yet to forge into social order and normality. Meanwhile, history assures us that civilizations decay quite leisurely. For 250 years after moral weakening began in Greece with the Sophists, Hellenic civilization continued to produce masterpieces of literature and art. Roman morals began to decay soon after the conquered Greeks passed into Italy. But Rome continued to have great statesmen, philosophers, poets and artists until the death of Marcus Aurelius. Politically, Rome was at Nadir when Caesar came. Yet, it did not quite succumb to the barbarians till 465 AD. May we take as long to fall as did Imperial Rome. Perhaps discipline will be restored in our civilization through the military training required by the challenges of war. The freedom of the part varies with the security of the whole. Individualism will diminish in America and England as geographical protection ceases. Sexual license may cure itself through its own excess. Our unmoved children may live to see order and modesty become fashionable. Clothing will be more stimulating than nudity. Meanwhile, much of our moral freedom is good. It is pleasant to be relieved of theological terrors, to enjoy without calm the pleasures that harm neither others nor ourselves, and to feel the tang of the open air upon our liberated fresh.